BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast family. This week's show is brought to you by Disney Plus. Now streaming the new documentary, Fauci, and other works of fiction. Well, 2022 is barely two weeks old, and already we've had too many shocking celebrity deaths. Yes, I know, Betty White was 99, but uh, did anyone expect her to pass just days before her big 100th birthday bash? Certainly not People Magazine, which put that landmark event on its cover as if it had already happened. That's embarrassing. Comedian Bob Saget died just a few days ago. And his death really hit pop culture hard. I was on social media, looking at Facebook and Twitter. People really, really were rocked by that. They miss him. They loved his work. And I get it. You know, most of us don't know or didn't know Betty White or Bob Saget. But they did enter our homes decade after decade, making us smile, making us laugh, taking us away from our troubles. They didn't ask anything in return. They also didn't insult our lifestyles or faiths or even preferred politicians wasn't their style. That's not rare these days, but it's it's becoming a little bit, maybe. Modern comedians are often part joke-teller, part hard-charging partisan. It's just the way things are now. Then you have the out-and-out propagandists like Stephen Colbert and John Oliver. They're in a different category. Let's skip over them entirely. Now, I don't know how Saget or Betty White voted. I don't know if they ever told really partisan jokes, but if they did, I'm sure they weren't as vicious and, and mean-spirited as what Seth Meyers does on, on his uh, late-night platform. That is just kind of rough going. Now, it seems like maybe this is an exaggeration, but there's like a shrinking number of stars who we all love without hesitation. Kind of reminded me of how we all mourned when Alex Trebek died. We actually watched him suffering through cancer. He was winning. He was losing. We got different medical updates. He just seemed to have a very brave face through it all, just appreciating what he had, what he had been given. And then when he was gone, we were all missing him and mourning for him. And it's understandable again. A lot of us watched his show five nights a week. Now, I think one of the other stars who really rushes to mind when you think about this category of beloved, you'd have a hard time finding anyone to speak ill of them. Dolly Parton. And uh, let's hope she lives for a very long time. Maybe 
Bob Newhart, too. He kind of comes to mind. He really has not been in the public eye, but he's been someone who's been making a smile and laugh for decades and always seemed like a very gentle, kind soul. Of course, Betty White and Bob Saget fell into that category directly. Just sweet entertainers who made us laugh and didn't make us feel guilty for doing so. I think sometimes it feels a little bit odd mourning perfect strangers. Most of us never got this chance to meet either star. Maybe we saw them from a stand-up stage, or we met Betty White at a meet-and-greet, perhaps, at best, but we didn't know them. But in a way, we kind of did. We knew their craft. We knew what they were trying to do. We knew how they kind of reached out to us with so many different projects in so many different ways. Not everyone was a direct hit. Not everything was a laugh riot, but more often than not, they did make us smile. I think there's nothing really wrong with missing stars who took us away from our problems over the years. It's just what they do best, and we need more of it. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial? VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This week's Toto's take is Journey to the Mysterious Island. Now, I have to say, when it comes to movie reviews, I'm a firm believer in meeting movies halfway. And by that, I mean if a movie's a big, dumb horror movie, you, you roll with it. You hope the jump scares are effective. You hope things move quickly. You hope there's some bloodshed. That's why you're watching a horror movie. And that's kind of greeting the movie where it wants to be. It actually reminded me of this 2012 sequel. Now, this was to a film that I don't think had much of a big box office presence. And that may explain why they kicked out the leading man. Brandon Frazier is gone. Hello, Dwayne Johnson. It's not a bad upgrade when you're talking about an action movie, for sure. No offense to Brandon Frazier, a good actor, but he's no Dwayne Johnson. But uh, he hadn't become a super-duper star quite yet. I think he was on the cusp at that point back in 2012. Now, the story follows his character. He's trying to bond with his stepson, played by Josh Hutcherson, who was in the original film. Got some connective tissue there. And these two are tracking down a mysterious signal. It's a distress call. And this island that they find themselves in may or may not be forgotten in time. And, of course, you cue the action, the adventure, some clumsy flirting, some joking around by Dwayne Johnson. It's all designed to make the whole experience go down smoothly. And it does. It's fun. It's silly. And then you add an appearance by Michael Caine. Well, that only makes things better. It's a perfectly agreeable film. I liked it. I didn't love it. It's not a classic. It's a good time waster. kind of knows exactly what it wants to be. I love that in a film. Just kind of deliver what you're expected to deliver. Nothing more, nothing less. It's... Maybe it's a low common denominator, but I think when it hits the right tone, that's perfectly fine. I think really this journey to experience, and they kind of use the number two as a little play on words there, is exactly that. Now, Journey to the Mysterious Island is kind of the movie you want to do on Netflix and chill. Maybe on an afternoon, maybe a Saturday. Saturday where it's raining too much outside. And as it turns out, Netflix is exactly where you'll find it. Writer in Hollywood loves to promote right-of-center artists who may not be in your radar quite yet. And that led me to Roy Griffiths, or you can just call him Griff. Turns out he knew from a very early age he wanted to be a writer, and now he's got a few book series to call his own. Not bad, right? He also knows why more conservatives should be creating their own art to compete with their left-leaning peers. Even if he's not trying to bop you over the head with his messaging, from what I understand, most of the right-of-center artists I speak to don't want to go that route. I think it's a really good idea to avoid that. Maybe there are some messaging, you know, 
built into the story, some text, some text is certainly fine, but they don't want to be the uh, sort of the propagandist that some people on the left have turned out to be. They just want to tell a great story. And I think Griff also knows that if you stick your head in the ground and ignore pop culture, that's a losing strategy. I think we've learned that the hard way over the last few years. Now, Griff gets the pop culture scene better than most people, especially certainly most of the experts out there. It's a big reason why I wanted to have him on the show. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Griff, thanks for joining Right on Hollywood. And I know you're an author and you've got a cool story to share on that front, but I wanted you and I kind of connected online and uh, swapped some emails. And you, you mentioned a great example of how the culture is being shaped before our eyes. Often it's a left of center, left of center narrative that's going on. And, you know, it can be obvious like a Michael Moore movie, but sometimes it's far less obvious. And you mentioned a, uh, I think it's an, a Hulu product called Dope Sick. And I wanted you to maybe tell listeners a little bit more about that and, and what you determined or what you saw as you watched that particular show. Well, I, I just want to give a little context of why I was looking for this stuff or why I've started to, because uh, I've, I've come to the uh, conclusion, uh, wait, I'm reaching for my tinfoil hat now, <laughs> that uh, liberals and regressives, um, don't even get me started on their communist roots, uh, one of the things they've done is taken over um, they have, they have begun creating the cultural myths of our time. It used to be the church, or it used to be maybe, uh, you know, there were a lot of other avenues, but uh, it's become very monolithic. I mean, you know, you hear stories about the guys in the 30s. They may have been bleeding heart uh, liberals in a lot of ways, but they were really interested in making money because these were guys who came out of the, right out of the Depression, and they said, we're going to give people product they want to see, and if it's you know Andy Hardy and uh, you know let's build a let's build a barn and give a play, <laughs> you know if they want to see that every three months, then by golly we're going to give it to them until uh, they're tired of it. You know we don't really have a shared a common cultural myth anymore. We we did, um, but increasingly people look to the media to give them those myths, those those stories. The the you know this is. I wish Young were alive to look at this, but it's become a lot of the uh, uh, cultural unconscious. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, forgive, forgive me if I sound pretentious, but I really believe this is the case because one, the way I, I see that the cultural myth is they're, they're, they're starting to, they're working very hard to tell a story. I mean, it was obvious in the, the way dads were treated. Dads were buffoons. They were clueless. They were no help. Uh, mom needed to, to, to save everything and homer j and, simpson you know, maybe is a good example what, of that who what which homer, one homer j simpson is sort of the perfect example but yeah that's a, sort of one of the more recent cultural tropes the hapless frenzied father and the sort of mature grounded mom totally totally and you know it's like you know when you want when you want stuff done right you go see mom um but um you know the more recent example and and it, actually to, in my opinion once you start looking for it you can't unsee it um you know you'll hear about shows people say are good and i watched uh i watched the first episode of what is that oh dang it was you know the uh, i can't even remember it now Squid Man. Game? I, I watched one episode carrie carrie washington was in it and it was something about you know managing scandal or scandal i think it was scandal it. yes Scandal. okay i watched the first episode because somebody said how great it was and um uh the um the ultimate antagonist was a uh, a conservative, let's see, a right-wing conservative pundit 
former military person who gasp was secretly gay and that was you know his he he couldn't accept that or his people couldn't accept it and therefore he was the villain I was like, come on, guys, really? <laughs> that checks um, a lot of stereotype boxes right off the bat. So Totally. And, and, and by the way, once you see it, you're going, as soon as you see it anymore, you're like, well, okay, that, that guy's the bad guy. Basically, what they're presenting is they're giving you this, uh, this version of everybody knows. You know, well, everybody knows Republicans are, are racist and sexist and, you know, and they're greedy and they hate the earth and, you know, just fill in the blank. But it becomes a sort of pernicious background noise and um, dope sick. I watched dope sick, which in a lot of ways was great. It was sort of like a really interesting horror movie. Um, you know, Michael Keaton was great. And the guy playing Sackley, who was apparently a Broadway actor, was terrific. But I noticed toward the end of the film, you know, obviously, this is like this, this one we can all get behind about the big pharma actually being the bad guys. Um, and putting profits ahead of people, because it seems pretty clear they did. But um, when this is coming together in like episode five or, or six, they start planting these things about how, you know, this farm pharmaceutical company is buying politicians, and they, they're name dropping, particularly a Republican, who they mention, who was apparently, you know, feeding at the big pharma trough, but Rudy Giuliani. He was all aboard to defend big pharma. And, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, Abe, it's fact. I don't know. Maybe it's fact. And, and that's cool. But at the very end of the film, the, the, um, the epilogue, they do not, they knew Ma, when they finally, you know, after 20 years, have, have uh, run this company, company into bankruptcy. They're shutting them down because, you know, they were terrible people and they did terrible things. And they're telling us how. In fact, the, the owners of the company were escaping with, you know, mansions and millions intact. And, you know, it was only a sort of a shell game to uh, have them avoid being liable for all these terrible things financially. Uh, they're showing us clips of outraged politicians saying, there's no way they should get away with it. You know, they're, they're going on vacation and they're sticking the tech, whatever it was. And every single real life, you know, news clip was of a Democrat. Everyone was a D saying, here I am standing up with the little guy where they set it up in the prior episodes. Yeah, the Republicans, they're all on board with, you know, let's just make money and screw the little guy. And I think and, when it comes to corruption anyway. in general, though, it's kind of a bipartisan issue and a bipartisan problem. So I, I suspect there's some cherry picking going on there. But it, but it is, it is a good example. And you see that. I think my favorite example of this, and it's it's microscopic, but also speaks volumes. Years ago, they made a Three Stooges movie, and it was passable, mildly entertaining. It sort of conjures up the is old that the Farley gang. brothers. You know, I don't know if they were. They may have been behind it. And uh, okay. it didn't really kind of connect with the culture in a big way. But there's a scene, and I've seen the still of it, which is so funny, of the, the evil couple. They're in bed, and they're so maybe they're plotting their schemes. or just It's just a quick throwaway moment of the bad guys in the movie. And they right. show them in bed, and one of them is reading weekly, the Weekly Standard, which is defunct <laughs> now, but it was a sort of a mainstream conservative uh, magazine. And I thought, right. oh, that's the tell. You know they're not just bad, but they're really bad because they're reading the Weekly Standard. So, yeah, that's, that's a small that's, example, that's, but well, but it's—I mean, it's totally unspeakable behavior, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, we we need to know nothing more about them. They mm -hmm. might as well have a yellow star, yeah, yeah, uh, on their on their sleeve.
Gotcha. Now, talk a little bit about the work that you do and, and how that either dovetails into this or maybe is just apolitical and pure entertainment. Because I'm curious about that. You, you've got two different book series going on right now. Maybe just give us a quick snapshot of each and, and share a little bit about how they came to be. Jeez, it came to be because uh, my dad introduced me to the Tarzan movies when I was a kid on Saturday morning. And he told me that there was a guy who actually wrote these stories. And, you know, I was young and dumb. And I went, wait, somebody made these up? <laughs> and uh, so I went racing out and found the books. And, you know, I was 10. I said, I'm going to be a writer. And, and I never looked back. And um, I, I, I actually, I was, a, I was in Hollywood for about a year. I worked as a, I was a member of the Writers Guild. And um, uh, pretty much every story you hear about being a screenwriter, an, an aspiring screenwriter in Hollywood, I would say is true, except I didn't wait tables. I was uh, you know, too far away to do that. But uh, I, I like you, I loved movies ever since I was a little kid, because I thought um, movies were like the closest thing to a shared dream we could mm -hmm. have. My you know, gateway drug, by the there. way, was Abbott and Costello movies. Yours were Tarzan, so I think we <laughs> have a oh, similar yeah, pedigree. We're, we're totally hip, but <laughs> but yeah, but but you know, I mean, you've written with 500 strangers in a in a dark theater, and with a good movie, I mean, in a great movie, it's like you can have this more or less the same emotional experience, you know, and and that was like magic and power, and and, and I thought I want I want to be part of that, I want to do that. So, I mean, I grew up and I wrote short stories and stuff, and. But after, after I'd been in, in Hollywood for a bit, uh, I, I sold a TV movie to Fox, which was uh, promptly uh, trashed. Uh, never never got produced. What the heck? I got in the writer's guild. But um, I, I discovered at a certain point, um, I was kind of tired of the whole committee thing. Um, you know, that, that thing where you, you, you write this script and then you hand it in and this, this uh, uh, you know, this group of about 10 MBAs who were maybe 25 they read it and they give you notes. And uh, I had this, uh, this award-winning script about the Korean War. And one of the notes I got when I was uh, peddling it was, hey, hold on, I've got to go find out. And again, this is a Korean War. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know history, the Koreans were the people we were fighting against and they were attempting to take over South Korea. They were, shall we say, the villains of the piece. Well, this guy told me, uh, hold on, I've got to go find out if it's okay to have the North Koreans be the bad guy. <laughs> True story. You know, I'm a hand of God. And I, I said, man, I'm doing something desperately wrong. Here. That's, right. That's a sign. <laughs> Yo, it was. So, uh, so I, I went off to be a, a single dad for a while. And then I just started writing novels and that was really freeing because I just, I was just writing for myself. You know, I, I to the point, heck I'm writing for free anyway. So I might as well write what interests me. And, uh, and the reason I actually don't have a writing career is I, is I just write what, what interests me. One series is my By the Hands of Men uh, historical fiction series. Starts in World War I when a wounded English lieutenant meets a, a volunteer English nurse who's, who's actually a Russian immigrant. Uh, and they fall in love. And then, uh, you know, war, disease, and human duplicity tear them apart. But the memory of those, those few weeks, like, haunts them for the next two, two decades as they, they cross the world. The whole book is about the idea that, you know, the hands of men can make a heaven or a hell of where we are. And, and you know, being in World War One, these people certainly saw the hell part of it. And, you know, as far as I can see, uh, what makes that particularly conservative is just all my stuff is basically about choice, you know, mm -hmm. because when I was uh, 27, um, I'd listed in the Coast Guard and um, mostly as I was looking for a personal challenge and they had this uh, new school coming out called uh, Rescue Swimmer School. 
And they said it was at the time the second toughest school in the Navy. It was so new, the Coast Guard didn't teach it. It was taught by the Navy. I looked at that, I said, wow, second toughest school in the Navy. That sounds like a, a real challenge I need to do. And it was so out of character for me that nobody believed I was doing it because I was a drama geek in high school. I wasn't quite wearing elf costumes and prancing <laughs> around, but I wrote poetry and short stories and, and I did plays. So um, I did that, it, you know, and I changed the story I told myself about myself. So I'm a big believer in that. And then my, anyway, my other completely unrelated uh, series is called the, it's called Cthulhu Amalgamated. Um, you know, it's the old HP Lovecraft. Who knows why the guy would have written if he was on mushrooms, but you know, HP Lovecraft came up with this in, insane mythos, imagining uh, there were old gods that, that pre-existed man and time, and they were just waiting for, you know, reasons that weren't ever really clear to swoop in and, uh, you know, subjugate the world and grind us underfoot and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was so bizarre and so unusual for the time people really got into it. It was, it was some of the first fan fiction, I think, because you know, other writers were like, man, this is cool. Let me write a story. And, and, you know, they would, they would kill each other off in their stories and stuff. And it's just become this vast uh, sub subculture because a lot of, a lot of people know it and they have games and they have some movies, but uh, so that's the basic idea is there's these vast entities with all these weird, unpronounceable names. Uh, the most familiar of which is Cthulhu. And that's probably the only one I can pronounce waiting for their chance. And so they have minions and they have, different subjects and, and, you know, people who tote and fetch for them. And it occurred to me, any organization this size, they've got to have some kind of administration, <laughs> you know, somebody's, somebody's going to be writing the paychecks, That's you right. know, and travel vouchers and stuff. So just, it just came to me one day and I just had this vision of uh, the schlub in HR, which is actually called human restraint, you know, <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's just a story of this, this guy, a shuggeth, which is again sort of their lowly uh, guys who, who dig trenches and uh, build you know vast despairing dachas for them on the outer reaches of the known universe and that kind of thing, and uh, it's just a story about this guy who just so happens to be uh, the nephew of a minor great old one who's like a C level executive, and his uncle asks him to do him a favor one day, which is, uh, hey, I need you to go to Earth because you have a minor in human studies. And check out this little weird situation we have there. So it's um, it's a shuggeth out of water story, basically, <laughs> because he he's uh, he's only read, you know, he's like one of these academics who knows nothing about what's really going on. And so he goes to Earth and has a, a number of uh, misadventures there. Excellent. Well, I'm glad your your career steered you here, and maybe not into the, uh, the the dreck of Hollywood, where a million different voices would be watering down what you're trying to say. Sometimes maybe things are working out for the best. Now, uh, before I let you go, I want to make sure they can steer people to where they can find your work. Of course, Amazon.com. You can just look up uh, Griff's name. It's Roy M. Griffiths, or you can go to Roy M. Griffiths.com, and Griffiths is G-R-I-F-F-I-S. And Griff, I appreciate all the time you're giving us today, and uh, keep doing your work your way, and uh, keep playing, uh, you know, being part of the culture. And I think we need more artists to do that, more people being inspired, and more people maybe gently or not so gently rejecting some of the progressive tropes that are being stuffed down our, our throats from Hollywood. I think we need a bit of a, a bit more diversity in that front, and I think you're uh, providing it. All right. Well, it's great talking to you, man. Hey. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Greed is good. At least that's what Michael Douglas tried to tell us back in the 80s. Diversity is good too. And so is tolerance. In fact, it's great. And yet tolerance these days is too often a one-way street. Or maybe it's just malarkey, as a certain president might say. Meet Gregory Angelo. He's the head of the New Tolerance Campaign. It's a nonprofit that calls out groups that talk a big tolerance game, but can't quite live up to those ideals. Need some examples? Well, think about the NBA. They love Black Lives Matters, but they also cozy up to China. And we know exactly what the Chinese government is doing these days to select populations. It's ugly and scary and should be stopped. NBA? Not too interested. Or you can think about campuses like UC Berkeley, once the home of free speech, now free speech isn't exactly top priority. Now, Gregory knows a thing or two about both pop culture and the government as it works. And his group is making some swift inroads in his first few months. I'm glad to hear that. It's also a perfect topic for Right on Hollywood, which is why Gregory's here to share more about real tolerance and making a real difference. Gregory, thank you for joining the show. And I'm curious about your connection to the New Tolerance Campaign when you join a, an organization like this. I'm sure these issues have been front of mind for you. Was there anything specific in recent months, uh, an incident, a conflict, a news story that really made you in, even more so eager to join this organization? Well, I can't say there was any one instance or story. I, I think that like many Americans, uh, regardless of political affiliation, I looked out at the, the current cultural landscape that we have uh, and saw that it is filled with rank hypocrisy. Uh, institutions that are more than happy to virtue signal, talk about how supportive they are of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Um, but when it comes to actually consistently applying those values, they're not doing that. I will say that one of the galvanizing campaigns on board the organization uh, in the middle of, of 2021, that's when Major League Baseball made a, a big show of pulling the All-Star game out of Georgia uh, because as they said, there were voting rights laws that were being passed that were repressing the vote. And so uh, they ended up moving the All-Star game from Georgia, a state that had at least 17 days of early in-person voting to Colorado, a state that has only 15 days of early in-person voting. Um, they moved it from a red or you could say even like purplish state to a blue state um, for a law that was really being blown out of proportion in the media, a law that really just tightened up um, uh, voting requirements, uh, things like showing ID, signature verification, et cetera. Um, and I know that there were there are many people around the United States that were just absolutely blown away by the fact that a, a an entity, the Major League Baseball specifically, um, could make such a, a sweeping statement uh, and actually increased political polarization <laughs> in the United States rather than um, diffusing it. Gotcha. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in about, about your organization is it's really hard to change the culture. And it's certainly hard to change behaviors within that culture. And 
part of what you're doing is is hoping to impact and effect change. Can can you share a little bit, sort of maybe the steps that you're looking to undertake to make that happen? Sort of the levers you have at your disposal. Yes. This is the very important key differentiator with the New Tolerance Campaign. We are the only grassroots organization that is marshalling everyday Americans around the country to stand up and push back against the hypocritical, quote unquote, woke institutions that are not living up to their stated values, that are silencing conservative voices and speech, and that are actually the reason why we have things like cancel culture, why our um, culture is as politically polarized as it is today. You know, Christian, there's a, um, I guess it's a somewhat apocryphal, um, uh, you know, statement that if you are, um, if you're not liberal when you're young, you don't have a heart. And if you're not conservative when you're old, you don't have a brain, <laughs> right? Winston Churchill, I believe, was uh, quoted as saying that. Well, guess what's happened? Um, you know, we we had for years in the in the conservative movement felt that once students who are being indoctrinated on liberal college campuses went out into the real world, got a job, started paying taxes, they would naturally get more conservative. That hasn't happened. We now have several decades of students who have been indoctrinated with liberalism in our institutions of higher education. And rather than turning conservative, they have gone even farther left. And over the decades, what has happened is these are now the people who are populating the corporate boardrooms of so-called socially conscious brands. They are at the heads of major media companies. They are the people who are running the newsrooms and major publications. And they are the executive directors of activist nonprofits uh, that once had very admirable missions and goals like the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU. But now they have basically, those institutions have become mouthpieces for the left and, and democratic talking points. And it's the institutions that really shape the culture. You know this as someone who really covers Hollywood and entertainment. Um, this is Hollywood and, and the media have a direct pipeline into the living rooms of all of America. And so you look back and, and, and you wonder, well, how did we get to where we are now? It's really because the institutions have failed us. So what, what can you do at New Tolerance Campaign? You can visit our website, newtolerance.org. And we are a platform that actually allows people to send messages directly to the decision makers at media companies, these woke corporations, et cetera, letting them know that you will not tolerate their phony intolerance. Like here, here's a great example. If you go to our website right now, we have a campaign uh, that was started when Disney uh, and Lucasfilm had fired Gina Carano for saying probably something that's a, a little impolitic. You know, uh, she had compared the, the treatment of conservatives in Hollywood to uh, that of the Jews in the Holocaust. Yeah, hyperbolic, definitely probably not, not the, the, the wisest thing for her to say. And she was terminated from the show, while at the same time, one of her co-stars compared Trump supporters to Nazis, and he was able to keep his job. So what can you do? You can go to our website and send a message directly to Kathleen Kennedy at Lucasfilm, letting her know of your disgust at that decision, the, the, the rank hypocrisy that was on display when they did it, and to make sure that Lucasfilm and Disney does not engage in that type of behavior again. Uh, and I think you know what we're finding, Christian, is we have already almost 42,000 supporters in all 50 states. And so there's definitely a movement out there. There's really a groundswell, I would say, of people that um, are not only fed up with the way institutions and the media and Hollywood are dragging our culture, but they want to stand up. They're afraid to stand up if they feel that they're going to be the only voice. 
But when they come to New Tolerance Campaign and see that there are tens of thousands of other people just like them who are willing to sign petitions, send messages, make their voices heard, um, they're much more likely to do so. You know, I think the, the, the Corano example couldn't be any better. And I think it's really important because you think of it this way. Let's take the woke mindset and the people who adhere to it at their word. They want to make this a kinder, gentler nation. They want us to be decent with each other, and they have no tolerance, quote-unquote, for people who are behaving badly. And yet that example with those two actors shows, well, if they really meant what they said, both of those actors would be off the show. But one is dismissed, and one isn't even given a rap on the knuckles, so to speak. So it, it is a great example. You know, one of the things I've been frustrated with over the last couple of years, with some exceptions, is that free speech has become a partisan issue. And I think one of the good things is that people on the right often will cheer a Ricky Gervais, a John Cleese. Now, these are two fellows who are certainly of the left. They, they don't vote the way that I vote. And yet I don't care, and neither do many conservatives, because when it comes to free speech, they are stalwarts in this fight. Uh, why do you think that the free speech issue has become a left-right debate when it, boy, it shouldn't, at least on paper? Well, I, I guess it, it goes back consistently to uh, what the institutions and the media, you know, tell us is acceptable speech. You know, there was a, a time, I, I think you, you probably felt it just when I did, it was probably like in the last you know, five, six years or so, um, probably around the time that Donald Trump declared that he was running for the presidency in, uh, in, I believe it was June of 2015. Now, you know, correlation does not necessarily equal causation, but you could really feel it around then when the left started using phrases like certain types of speech are violence mm -hmm. and violence needs to be stopped. It needs to be, it needs to be banned. Right. So, so people became very cavalier in the left with equating any type of speech they didn't like, with violence and creating that mindset in our cultural landscape. And so what happens then? We know when speech is violence, it's something that, that then actually, you know, is something that, that, that can be banned. It is something that, that, that the left feels they can legislate against. They're willing to throw out the principles of the Constitution, even the Constitution itself, um, if it is a cause or a, a speech or a perspective that they disagree with. Yeah, and oh, now, by the way, punch, punch a Nazi while you're at it, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, you talk about people like John Cleese and others, like Ricky Gervais, who have, you know, stepped up and, uh, and pushed back against this. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not necessarily a fan of, of their politics either, but it's at least nice to, nice to know that there are people on the left that have some modicum of reason left when they understand the attacks that are happening to freedom of speech in the United States. And I don't think it's an accident Christian, that it's the comedians on the left that are sounding the alarm about the way the Bill Maher and others, right, who are, who are sounding the alarm about the way that the left is encroaching upon freedom of speech in the United States and around the world, because they understand that you know, some of the funniest jokes are the most honest jokes. And when you have people like Dave Chappelle, who are losing millions of dollars, losing movie deals, uh, who are attempting to be silenced by the left, simply for, as we say, telling it like it is and, and poking fun at how we are at a society and in doing so, allowing us to see ourselves, that's a magic that you only have in the arts and in entertainment. And some of the thought leaders in the entertainment industry, thankfully, are understanding that if you do not have a First Amendment, you don't really have entertainment. You know? yeah. in, the sense, in the sense that, that you know, 
entertainment allows us to look inward, look at our souls. It is something that um, speaks to the culture of the time. And if the entertainment industry is not allowed to do that, uh, then then nothing will be able to. So, yeah. I, um, you know, thankfully, I, some some of the more rational voices are are making their voices heard. I just hope others others do so. This is where I plug my new book, Virtue Bombs: How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul, because it covers this exact topic. It really is the heart of the book. Is the is sort of a clamp down on free speech and creativity that's happening with the culture. And the comedians are speaking out. At least some of them are because you're taking away their toolkit without without the speech, without the freedom, without the ability to kind of tell a joke. In incorrectly and then you know workshop it until it's a good joke they're they're kind of you know they're kind of helpless in a way that's that's kind of really what they do it's been really sad to me to see comedians like Stephen Colbert and, and Mark Marin take the opposite approach I think they're just afraid but that's a, a story for another day yeah obviously I cover Hollywood this podcast about Hollywood it's what I do I've been doing it for years now and tolerance is maybe the biggest buzzword along with diversity inclusion this industry is not very tolerant at all. Do you have any sort of specific thoughts on that? Uh, I, I do. I mean, and, and I think maybe the the hypocrisy that you see and the, the phony tolerance, as I call it, is a no greater on, in a no greater way on display than it is with the way the entertainment industry uh, in the United States, uh, while they stand up for diver- diversity, equity, inclusion here at home, they are more than happy to bow down to China uh, in, in pursuit of the, of the market in China, to look the other way when it comes to flagrant human rights abuses that are happening in China um, in order to make sure that you know, movies are able to be screened in China, to pre-censor movies in, before they are even shot in the West to make sure that the Chinese authorities will be happy to screen them once they make their way over to the east. I mean, we talk about freedom of speech. I think this is, you know, this is kind of at the core of it where um, movies today are actually getting censored before they're even being made by studios that are supposedly all about supporting human rights and inclusion and, and we welcome everyone. Well, they're actually changing scripts to make sure that the final product that they're able to shoot is one that um, uh, is palpable for the censorious authorities uh, at the CCP in China. So, you know, I, I look out right now at the, especially in, in media and, and Hollywood, uh, it seems that they are always happy to espouse these virtues of tolerance and human rights and, and diversity um, until it comes home and, and hits their pocketbook. Yeah. Uh, and this goes for individuals. Uh, you know, it's not, not quite, you know, the entertainment industry, but I think you could, you could say, you know, professional sports is something that, um, you know, certainly falls in, in that same bucket as, as entertainment. But, you know, the NBA, uh, LeBron James and others, uh, in, in addition to major movie studios, you know, Disney bent over backwards to thank the CCP in a province in China that allowed <laughs> them to film uh, scenes in Mulan while at the same time they were conducting a brutal genocide of the Uyghur Muslims in that same province. Um, that sounds it, like it really satire, by the way. It's been sometimes you know, it, you know, when, it, I, when I see the way that, that uh, com- companies and media in, in America behave vis-a-vis China. I, I think if you wrote a script, a screenplay with that subplot, I think you get laughed out of the room and say, oh, that couldn't happen, but it's, it's happening right now. Uh, one thing I want to circle back to, and I think this is important. When I was a kid, there was a T, I think it was a TV movie with Danny Kaye. I believe it was called Skokie. It was about uh, a Nazis trying to march. It might have been in Indiana. 
And I don't know why, but that movie always stuck with me, just the idea of it, the concept behind it. And then I look at the ACLU of 2022, and it's in ways it's not recognizable. Real quickly, give an example or two, or, or maybe just share why the ACLU, which should be arm-in-arm arm with your organization, doesn't appear to be that way. Yeah, it, it does appear that the ACLU in the last several years has forgotten that the CL in the acronym <laughs> stands for civil liberties, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I, I always recall that the, the, the best way to um, understand the meaning of the First Amendment is to think of the most vile type of speech that you can and then understand that it is speech that needs to be protected. Um, that's what freedom of speech is all about. Freedom of speech is, 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 allows people to, of all different types, to share their perspective. And if you don't like someone's perspective, the best answer to their, their you want to call it hate speech, or if you want to call it their misinformation, is more speech. It's not less. Uh, and contrast that. And, and the ACLU has, has a long and storied history of defending some of the most vile organizations, some of the most vile speech in, in the United States, because they, they understood, I'm going to use past tense, they understood <laughs> that by protecting that speech, you are protecting speech for all. And that ultimately, in the marketplace of ideas and debate, that speech that people think is wrong or hateful would end up losing out at the end of the day, because the, the better ideas, the more tolerant ideas are the ones that, that, the more reasonable ideas are the ones that would win out. Well, you know, contrast that, um, you know, with the ACLU of, I believe it was the end of 2020, so we're a little over a year out from this now, um, but one of the uh, lawyers at the ACLU, someone who happens to be uh, transgender and, and who, you know, supports the, the trans movement, had tweeted that uh, banning Abigail Schreier's book that goes into um, uh, some of the, the medical reasons and, and, and psychological reasons uh, why, in her opinion, uh, the transgender movement is one that, that uh, is one that may, maybe should, should be given some pause. I say this as someone who has a career as an LGBT advocate myself, um, and I might not even agree with, I have not read Abigail Schreier's book, but I certainly wouldn't want it banned. But here you have someone from the ACLU who said that banning Abigail Schreier's book was a hill he would quote unquote die on. Um, that doesn't sound very much like the ACLU that I know, the classical ACLU, um, one that, you know, maybe someone's initial reaction, uh, you know, years ago at the ACLU would be to put out a white paper or a document or even another book that, uh, you know, counters some of the claims made in Abigail Schreier's book. But instead, you have uh, a senior member of the ACLU's legal team who's actually advocating for, you know, essentially modern book burning, right? You know, when you, when you <laughs> take books off of Amazon, when you take them out of the marketplace now, um, you do not allow them to be read. You do not allow them to be considered or even debated. Um, and that's not a very healthy place for our country to be going. And it's certainly not one that's in line with the mission and history of the ACLU. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You know, I, the, the, I often thought if a stand-up comedian went on a tour and he or she used really ugly, horrible language without wit, without uh, insider context, I think the tour would be shuttered. I think people would stay away and drove. I mean, sometimes the, even the marketplace will reject those bad ideas uh, on itself without any sort of lever in place. Before we let you go, you, you're, you're, we're in a new year. You're a fairly new organization. 
you know, you don't have decades of experience and, and sort of the, the machines all in place. But what are, are, are you optimistic for sort of tangible, uh, say, victories or sort of movement with your organization? And are there any specific areas you think uh, the New Tolerance Campaign can make a real difference in 2022? Well, I'm, I'm most definitely optimistic. I don't think that we're going to change the culture overnight. These things take time. Uh, the grassroots organizing that the left has done in this space they have decades of a head start on people who are in the center right. Um, but what's encouraging to me is just over the, the last several months since I came on board at the New Tolerance Campaign in July of, of 2021, uh, we went from over 30,000 supporters to now we're, we're fast approaching almost 50,000 supporters. My hope is by the end of this year, we're gonna be well over 100,000 supporters. We're going to continue to push back against the institutions that have failed to live up to their stated values this year. When I say institutions, I'm talking about these so-called socially conscious brands, institutions of higher education, of course, which continue to indoctrinate generations upon generations of, of students, and activist nonprofits like the ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, and others who have abandoned their missions. And Christian, what, what's exciting to me and why, why I do feel there is this optimism, I see that the numbers are working in our favor. More and more people are stepping up and supporting the campaigns at New Tolerance Campaign. More and more people are understanding that the culture has to change here, that we're reaching a point where things are kind of untenable. And the good news is, this is not what I'm seeing. It's not really a, a center-right or a center-left or certainly even liberal or conservative movement. Um, certainly more uh, of the people who support New Tolerance Campaign tend to come from a center-right background, but there are actually a lot more reasonable and rational people on the center-left than um, one might think, and especially when it comes to issues like this, understanding that cancel culture is not healthy for the United States, that wokeism is filled with rank hypocrisy and only leads to more political divisions in our country. Uh, they're, they're, they're there, they're willing to stand up and push back, and I'm glad that New Tolerance Campaign gives them a vehicle to do that. Yeah, and I hope this coming year finds more people left of center joining your, your group, because I think those people are actually maybe even more important. I, I don't discount people on the center right for, for doing the work they're doing. You know, God bless them, but I, I just speaking personally, I want my center left friends to understand what's going on in the culture and to fight back and to, if someone is canceled and just so happens to be on the right, it's not a good thing. And I don't care if you don't believe what he or she thinks, because there will be a point where what you think may come under fire as well. Well, Gregory, thank you for joining the show and for calling for true tolerance at a time where intolerance seems to be reigning supreme. You can learn more about the New Tolerance Campaign by going to its website, newtolerance.org. You can follow them on Twitter, at new underscore tolerance. And of course, follow Gregory as well. He is at Gregory T. Angelo. Thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to great things from your group. Thanks very much, Christian. Thanks for listening to Right on Hollywood, part of the Just the News podcasting family. It's a new year, but I've got the same old sales pitch. If you're enjoying this show, please tell a friend or give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Want to get crazy? Do both. Or just have an amazing week. That sounds good enough to me. We'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodIntoto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever. Free speech matters more than ever.